0: Welcome to the Deeper Dive podcast brought to you by the OC Church of Christ. The Deeper Dive podcast is about going deeper into God's Word, learning new insight and taking a fresh look at the verses that impact our daily lives. Today we will resume our series, Revelation Revealed with Gordon Ferguson. Get your scuba gear and let's dive deep into God's Word. Here is Gordon. Hello again.
1: This is Gordon Ferguson, and this is podcast number three dealing with the book of Revelation. We spent our first two podcasts uh, learning more about the type of language that Revelation is written in. And so we actually haven't gotten into Revelation until now. And we're going to do a fairly brief survey today. I do invite you to uh, get my book, Revelation Revealed, using the same title as the podcast. And uh, you can get a lot more in-depth there. And it will explain a number of things that I will just touch on lightly uh, in this uh, podcast today. But we have looked at the background of how the language was used the uh, symbolic type language, why it was used. We looked at different uh, parts of Isaiah, for example, that talk about the downfall of nations in their time. And it was written in this language just to really appeal to the imagination and help people either be encouraged that their enemy was going to be destroyed or maybe get really convicted about their sin because some of the uh, prophecies were aimed at them and what was going to happen to them if they did not change. So we come to the book of Revelation itself. A little on the background of it, basically what Revelation is dealing with is not some sequence that leads up to the end of time and tells you historically what's going to happen all through the centuries, nor Is it uh, a treatment of the, quote, end times, as so many people try to make it? And so they have interpretations of all kinds of historical things that are happening in our day, leading up to the end of time, which they suppose may be soon. And actually, uh, I don't doubt that it may be soon, to be honest with you but I don't go to Revelation to get that. I go to other passages that talk about the sin condition of a nation before they fall. And I've written about that one and could say many things about that. But the background of this book is about what they were facing at the end of the first century when this book was written. And so you have the background of two things that come up and they are connected. That is persecution because when the church first started, they were considered by the Roman authorities as a part of Judaism and they were that. They were the uh, second covenant people coming from the old covenant of Moses. They were coming into a new covenant. They were all Jews for a number of years and so uh, they were an extension of Judaism in the early days, but then it became obvious, certainly to the Jews fast, but it became obvious to the Romans eventually that they were a different religion. They had grown out of Judaism, but they were not the same. And the Jews themselves, of course, were persecuting Christians very early on uh, in the book of Acts. So, Anyway, you've got the persecution that takes place in the Roman Empire by the emperors themselves. One of the early persecutions was by Nero, who reigned in the mid-50s AD, uh, up until the late 60s. And he certainly did persecute Christians in Rome, but it was a localized persecution. Now, it was terrifying, but it was not what the book of Revelation was primarily written to address. Uh, The main thing that brought about the persecution ultimately was over the idea of emperor worship. The way the emperors uh, thought of themselves and had others think of them is that they were certainly to be highly honored in their lifetime, but then when they were dead, the senate voted them to be gods and just added one more god to their whole pantheon of gods. And so that took place for A number of emperors but Caligula who reigned from 37 to 41 AD he wanted to be worshipped as a god in fact he very nearly had a statue of himself placed in the temple in Jerusalem and Herod Agrippa talked him out of it but that would have been catastrophic had that occurred but he didn't rule long enough to put his wishes into effect on any widespread basis And so, even though he was one who had the idea of being worshipped while he was alive as a god, he didn't get that done because he got assassinated very early into his reign as emperor. The big focus in the book of Revelation is over Domitian. He went into emperorship in 81 AD and lasted till 96, and that is the period of time when the book of Revelation was written. It was an empire-wide persecution. He was the first emperor who demanded across the whole empire that he be recognized as Lord God Domitian in his lifetime. And so eventually the emperors were worshiped and there were all kinds of things connected to that to make sure that uh, everyone worshiped them. But it was a time when if you did not do that, if you did not pinch incense uh, and burn it and say, Lord God Domitian, if you didn't do that uh, in time, it led to people not being able to get jobs. It led to them actually being killed for doing that. And so it really heated up toward the end of the first century. And so that is what the book is primarily about. Sometimes I have people imagine that a midweek service, if they had midweek services back then. They met different times, sometimes a whole lot, sometimes persecution made it hard to meet, and they met in catacombs and so forth to get away from the persecution. But at any rate, imagine a midweek service, and this woman comes in, and her other friends quickly gather around her, and she is weeping, And they are asking what happened. And they all know that her husband was martyred. He was killed a couple of weeks earlier. But now she's still weeping strongly. They knew something must have happened uh, immediately. And so she told them that just that day, her oldest son had been arrested and she feared for his life. And so they comforted her, consoled her, And you can imagine that that sort of thing was taking place all over the different parts of the empire in churches. And so as groups gathered, they were dealing with something that was so serious, so threatening, it had taken the lives of loved ones. And the book of Revelation even talks about that and what we will see quickly in the first uh, several chapters of Revelation. But in light of the early Christians and what they were facing, my question's always been, how would a description of something to take place in the 21st century have helped them? This book was written to help them in what they were facing. It was so intense and they needed help. They needed to know that God understood, that he saw it, that he was going to uh, eventually judge those who were uh, bringing this persecution against them. But uh talking about the timing of the book and what it applies to, notice the first chapter and the last chapter. Here's what the book itself says. In the very first book, uh, uh re- rather the very first chapter and the very first verse even of uh, Revelation, it says, quote, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And then in the last chapter, chapter 22, quote, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So the book itself begins and ends with the comments that say this is about now, our time, not generations way down the line, hundreds or thousands of years later. This is about the persecution that was taking place because of emperor worship being demanded of all the Roman subjects, including those who worshiped the Christ and could not say that anyone was Lord besides him. Now, as we do a little survey through the book, chapter one introduces Jesus in a very amazing way. In fact, it was so, it was overwhelming to John, the apostle John, who wrote this. And so God appeared to him, gave him visions of Jesus in some very striking ways. And so that got the book started. And now, as we get into the next two chapters, Uh, we're going to get letters to the seven churches of Asia basically showing the condition and characteristics of the church overall at the end of the first century. You can read about these churches in other parts of the Bible, many of them at least, but suffice it to say that a lot of water had flowed under the bridge for the church in about six decades since it was established. And so, seven churches are written to. I think they are seven literal churches, but I think that God chose seven because that's the number of perfection. We talked about that earlier in the introduction. It's uh, the number of perfection, and so I think it gives you a perfect view of what the church overall was like. God selected these churches because in them, They portrayed the characteristics and condition of the churches all over the empire for us to see what had happened, what their temptations were, and how they had handled them and where they were spiritually at that time in the sight of God. Now, each church had an introduction saying that the message was coming from Christ, and they borrowed, or John borrowed, a brief description of Jesus that was found in chapter 1. And so you have the introductions. These are very brief uh, little uh, addresses to the churches. But it begins by introducing Christ again or some aspect of chapter 1 about Christ as each letter begins. Then most of the letters had commendations, good things said, and condemnations, things that displease God said, and there were some exceptions. Smyrna and Philadelphia, for example, had only commendations, nothing bad said about them. Sardis and Laodicea had only condemnations, nothing good was said. The other three had both that were talked to, addressed, And to me, as I look through the letters and we don't have time to go into them in detail at all, although I have preached many sermons on these churches. But the two that are most sobering to me are Ephesus and Laodicea because they are the most relevant in terms of being compared to our churches today, especially in America. And so I'd like to read a little from each of those to show that similarity. He says in Revelation 2, talking to the church in Ephesus, starting in verse 2, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. That's... uh a lot of commendation. Those are some very good things that are being said about them. And yet he moves on to verse three and says, or verse four rather, yet, in spite of these good things, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But then he concludes by saying, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here's the thing that's convicting about it. They did a lot of good things. They could be commended for a number of good things. But he says that you have grown uh, or not grown weary, but you have forsaken the love you had at first. That is so convicting. It says that we can't just maintain the status quo. It says that we just can't maintain doctrinal purity. We've got to have a personal relationship with God that grows. Uh, We have to get back our first love and let it grow. And we remember how much we love God, how grateful we were, how excited we were. We couldn't wait to tell everyone else about it. All of our sins got removed. We were in love with God. You were that way with your mate if you're married, right? How are you doing now? Teresa and I just celebrated our 57th anniversary eight days ago, 57 years. We have grown in our love for each other. We have focused on doing that. I wrote a book a few years ago, Fairy Tales Do Come True, 16 principles about our marriage that have caused it to grow and be what it is. I love our marriage. I am in love with my wife. I fall in love with her more. She knows my love languages. I know her love languages and we work hard not to just maintain a marriage. We work hard to enhance our love and therefore our marriage. What about our relationship with God? Have we grown in it? Do we still have that excitement? Now, I'll tell you, after many, many years of being a Christian, I've had my ups and downs. I've had my struggles with God. I've had times where I felt like he was far away. I felt like there were times he surely couldn't love me anymore. I mean, we've all been on the ups and downs side of of that. I understand that. But you know, I turned 79 my last birthday. I'm close to meeting God. I can't live too many more years. In fact, uh, a month and three days ago, I got a call from my surgeon telling me that I had cancer. And so I have, been up and down, as you might imagine, with that diagnosis, trying to figure out what to do with it. I finally went to get a second opinion at what is reputed to be the best place in Dallas, and I think it is University of Texas Southwestern. I finally got in there, and the story of that is a miracle itself, how all of that occurred. But at any rate, uh, for the last month and two days, I have felt like, okay, I've got this cancer. I don't know how widespread it is. I dreamed the other night that it was so widespread it couldn't even be treated, really, uh, terminal uh, quickly, in other words. And so I've had all kinds of uh, thoughts and whatever. But I had been praying, God, I want to have a personal relationship with you that's deeper and deeper. Before this ever happened, I had prayed and I had uh, said to God, uh, I see you as, father, as uh, not father uh, too much, some, but I saw him mainly as judge, mainly as Lord, mainly as the king of the universe, the creator of the world. I, I saw him mainly in those terms, and I couldn't grasp the personal relationship part of that nearly as well as I knew that I needed to. And I was working on it and honestly, in 2021, I had some great breakthroughs. Things went a lot better with that in spite of all the COVID pressures and all all that went with it. But after I got that diagnosis of cancer, it really helped me. The amazing thing that I'm still in shock over is that yesterday I heard from the doctor about three tests that I took last week. And the bottom line message was, there's no sign of cancer in these three tests. I still haven't told many people about it, to be honest, but I will today because I have 5,000 Facebook friends, I have a website that I've mentioned to you and a lot of followers on that, a lot of people read that. I put that on my Facebook uh, personal ministry page as well, asking for prayers. So thousands of people have been praying for me and God has answered those prayers. And right now, I'm still a bit in shock over all of it. But I thought to myself, even if I could take away the last month and two days prior to today or prior to yesterday, I wouldn't do it at all. It was one of the most marvelous times. It brought me closer to God than I've ever been in my life. And I'm on my 80th year now. Guys, we've got to grow. We can't just maintain a relationship, popping in a little quiet time just to maintain a relationship uh, and going to the services and, you know, just getting through. We can't settle for that, even in a time of COVID, even when you may have done most of your church going virtually. We cannot afford to be there. God said, consider how far you have fallen. How far. God wants us to be in love with him with that freshness that we had when we fell in love with him and to keep it growing all of our lives. So I'll stop preaching here. I need to keep going. But anyway, uh, I'm in the midst of some real growth in my own life right now. I'm pretty excited about it because I know that I want to meet God as an Abba, a dad, and as a friend. Jesus said, and he was God in the flesh. He said in John 15 to his apostles, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. That's how he wanted their relationship to be seen and felt. And that's what God wants of us. Skip over to Revelation 3, talking to Laodicea. He said in verses 15 to 17, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not recognize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And so they were in a rich setting, much like we are materially. They had a lot. They had industry there that made a lot of money. We'll go into the background, I do in the book and explain that. But they just felt like we're rich. We've got all we need. We've we've got our answers here in our possessions and in our money and in our business and in our careers. And they were much like we are today, to be honest, like many in America are. But he said, in my sight, you're not rich at all. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And so we've got to pay attention to what he says in these chapters. So he begins Revelation by introducing Christ chapter 1 in all of the amazing ways that he does. You'll have to read and look at what he says in chapter 1. But then in chapters two and three, he addresses seven churches, which which I think represent the churches universal, the condition they were in, and there's a wide variety of conditions there. You need to read all seven of these letters to the churches. Then in chapter four, we are introduced to God on his throne, which is saying to the Christians being persecuted, fearing for their lives, fearing for their loved ones, Uh, we have a picture of God that is showing he is in control of everything that is happening on earth, no matter how bleak it might seem. God is not surprised by anything. His hands are not tied. Uh, It's a lesson that is needed by every person in every generation, no matter what is happening to your life right now. Without question, God is in control. And so, chill out. Relax, look up, recognize that God is right there. He's on his throne, but he's also among you. He is with you. He is wanting to comfort you and assure you that you're okay. No matter what happens to you physically, you're okay. We've all got to keep that in mind. It didn't take long to get to be 79 years old. It really didn't. I mean, it went by fast, just like the Bible said it would be. It'd be like a vapor. It'd be like ships passing in the night. It, it would be uh, very, very fast. And it doesn't take long to get old, and we're all going to die. And so there's nothing more important than your relationship with God and learning to trust Him to the point that no matter what comes, uh you're going to trust Him. When I got the news... Uh, on the phone from my surgeon telling me that I had cancer, I was actually very, very calm. I thought to myself, well, we all have a shelf life. I told her that back when she uh said I had cancer an earlier time, but then she thought she got it all out and didn't in a, a second surgery 10 days later. But I told her we all have a shelf life. I know that this life is not what it's all about. And so if I can see God on his throne, then I'm fine in sickness and in health and poverty or in wealth in life or in death. Romans 14, Jesus is the Lord of the dead and the living. We've got to learn to think like that and quit fearing death and recognize that relationship to God is what it's all about. He is in control of the universe, and of each of our lives. And I could tell you hours of stories that have happened to me in the last month about some things that could not be coincidental. God has moved. I have seen him in so many circumstances, but I can go back in my entire life and do the same things in many different times. But he's doing it all the time. I just don't see it all the time, nor do you. But we've got to recognize that God's on the throne and God is with us. Chapter 5, he introduces Jesus as the lion and the lamb. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is powerful. He's everything chapter 1 described him as being and as the rest of the book describes him as being. But he's also the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And so chapter five pictures him reigning and ruling with the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he's introduced to us now uh, as he is in heaven with the Father, at the Father's right hand, but he was among us as a human being and God at the same time. But he is ruling and reigning and we can trust him. So there's some very interesting things that take place in chapter 5, showing him in both of those roles as lion and lamb. And so all of this is to give us confidence, to help us trust that God is on our side. He's not caught off guard with what Domitian is doing. He is on the throne. Now in chapter 6, we get into the real symbolic part of the book. Basically, the question is, why has this persecution come, and what is God going to do about it? And so in chapter 5, there was a scroll that no one could open except Christ, and it was sealed with seven seals. Of course, a seal was wax that they put on a letter to seal it, and that's what it was literally, but now in chapter 6, these seals morph into symbols, and they stand for something. And so it says he opens the seals, and here's the message that he gets when it opens. Now, if you were looking at this literally, you'd have to pop an, pop open all seven seals to unroll the scroll and read it. But he doesn't pop it all open. He takes opens one, and even though literally this would work, when he opens one, he gets a message. And so the first four seals represent four horses, which explain why the persecution came. That is their purpose. You have a white horse. So picture, uh, you're watching a scene. You're in some kind of huge uh, theater, and there's a gigantic stage, and you're sitting in the audience watching this. All of a sudden, a huge white horse comes rumbling and running across the stage, and his hoof beats are hitting that stage and making a great deal of noise, and this white horse runs across the stage and disappears. And then, while you're sort of in shock, a red horse, a huge red horse, runs across that stage with his loud hoof beats. And then a black horse comes next and runs across the stage. And then as the fourth seal is open, a pale horse runs across the stage, an unusual color. And so you're thinking, okay, what just happened here? I think the interpretation is he starts off by saying, here's why you are being persecuted. They're asking that question. They're saying, why is this happening? And what are you going to do about it? They're wanting to know from God, are you seeing this? Are you going to deal with this? And so the white horse, I think, stands for the preaching of the gospel. Then the red horse, bloodshed. That represents bloodshed as the resistance to the preaching of the gospel results and begins to grow and take place empire-wide. The black horse represents economic discrimination against Christians. We'll see more about that one in particular in chapter 13, but it was a fact that if you were a Christian, you could not buy and sell and do business because of the persecution. You were lucky if that's all that happened to you because so many Christians were actually martyred. The pale horse... Uh, is the color of a corpse, and so that was the inevitable death of those persecuted. It would start with resistance, the red horse. There would be the black horse discrimination economically, but ultimately it's going to end up in death for a lot of people. So that is the message of the first four seals. Then, still in chapter 6, the fifth seal shows martyred Christians under the altar calling for the vindication of their cause. They're wanting to know how long is this going to last. Now, it's symbolism. Because truthfully, what did happen to martyred Christians? They were with God. They were enjoying all that we are looking forward to enjoying. Uh, So they weren't really at that time calling out but it was sort of like uh, Abel's blood was calling out from the ground to God after uh, Cain killed him back in Genesis. Uh, Their blood is crying out to God for the vindication of their cause. Uh, They were actually with God, literally. But this is symbolic and the fifth seal shows martyred Christians under the altar. The altar, of course, in the Old Testament was where the animals were offered to God and their blood poured out at the base of the altar, etc. Well, that's where the Christians were, their cause was. They are under the altar. They have been sacrificed for their cause, and now they're wanting answers to why and when. When is this going to be vindicated? Are you really seeing it, God, and what are you going to do? Then the sixth seal introduces us to what will occur time and time again, all through the book, and that is the assurance of God's coming judgment against the persecutors, and here it shows an earthquake, the heavenly bodies being affected, using symbolic language that's very common to the Old Testament passages that we've already looked at, but that's just announcing it's going to happen. It doesn't tell you it's happened yet, it's just God giving them a brief announcement I see it and I am going to deal with it. Now, this happens to be a good stopping place. I will finish the rest of the overview on the fourth podcast that we'll have next week. But I can't get into chapter seven without talking a bit longer. So we'll end up perhaps a few minutes earlier. I'm trying to make this around 35 to 40 minutes each time because I know if you're just listening and not seeing someone and seeing their gestures and their expressions and all of that, it's a lot harder to listen to something that's just audio, but I appreciate a ton uh you listening. Uh, I do love teaching the book of Revelation. I've done it so many times, and it is exciting, and there's so many lessons and applications to us today. Guys, we've all got our persecutions of one sort or another. We've all got our problems that are common to human beings. We all need to know that God is on his throne. We all need to know that Jesus is the lion and the lamb, and he is uh, interceding for us all of the time. He ever lives to make intercession for us, the book of Hebrews tells us. But we also need to read the first three chapters, especially chapters two and three carefully to see what excited God about his church. What did he get excited about? What was he so thankful to be able to see? What was he so proud of in the church? And then what really disturbed him about the church? There are many lessons in chapters two and three that we need right now. I gave you a couple in chapters two and three with Laodicea and Ephesus. But Ephesus, the message is God wants our heart, not just that we have a checklist and we go to church and give our offering and have a little quiet time or whatever, or even a big quiet time. He's not interested in the checklist. He's interested in us doing and being what it takes to be in a loving, personal relationship with him. His love for us, surpasses any bounds that you could dream of. I wrote an article on my website and put it in that little book on the power of relationships. I call it the greatest story ever told. The greatest story ever told is that when God created humans, when he created them, he knew what they were going to do. He knew that they were going to sin and he knew that he would become a man in the person of Jesus and personally die for the sins of the world. The Creator would die for the Creator. Guys, if things like that, if truths like that in the Bible don't cause us to fall on our knees in adoration and our hearts to be open to God and love, uh, if God's love story the Bible doesn't affect us that way, we just need to get help because God, more than anything else, is not after what we do, although he wants us to do a lot of things, but he wants that doing to come out of a heart that is absolutely full of love for him. He wants to recognize, or us to recognize, that that is what life is all about, and it's not about What the last letter in that group says, it's not about having a lot of material possessions. It's not about careers. It's not about entertainment. It's not about all of the things that the world gets excited about. He said, if you focus on that, you are blind. You see nothing, and you are absolutely naked before me. You don't have any clothes on. Because you are nothing. You are embarrassed. You are ashamed or should be. I mean, that is one convicting passage there. And in all of it, God is simply saying, repent. Repent before it's too late as a church. And he talks about that. Repent as an individual while you still have an opportunity. God is begging you to follow him and to follow him to the point that you are in love with him, with a love that grows every day. I'm in love with God today on February the 8th, 2022. God has blessed me through a trial, through the big C uh, diagnosis a little over a month ago. God has led me through that to write many pages of prayers and journaling, and I love God today more than I ever have in my entire life, and that's what God wants. I hope uh, he doesn't have to put you through too many trials to get you there, but I wouldn't take anything for the trial that I've had of the last month. It's been beautiful. I wouldn't take that away for anything. I wouldn't erase that last month and have me just carefree and feeling great with no worries. I am grateful for the up and down roller coaster I've been on for the last month. So whatever it takes, guys, uh, we need to be in love with God. He loves us incredibly and will do anything to get our hearts. Please, please, please do whatever it takes for you to have a relationship with God that is deep and warm and fuzzy and personal and is growing so that it's a lot like the relationship I have with my wife and better because I'm more in love with her than I've ever been in my life after 57 years of marriage. So I hope you will cultivate relationships with God, with your family, with everyone you know. I've gotten calls and things in the last month from people I hadn't seen in 40 years telling me how much I did for them 40 years ago. I'm telling you, I've cried a lot of tears just realizing how important relationships are and how great it is to love and be loved by people and by God. Thank you for tuning in. God bless you. We'll talk to you next week.
0: Thank you, Gordon, and thanks for listening to Deeper Dive by the OC Church of Christ. To conclude our Revelation Revealed series, we will have a Q&A with Gordon about the book of Revelation. If you would like to submit your question, please email us at occhurchofchrist@gmail.com at gmail.com or message us on social media. If you want to get connected to us or want to donate to the program, go to our website, occhurchofchrist.com or through social media at the OC Church. Join us next time for our next deeper dive.